But for today, this is Acts chapter 21, and we'll start reading in verse 27. This is Paul arrested in the temple, and we'll finish the chapter. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. Verse 37, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? He said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, we'll stop right there. Let's bow and ask the Lord for help in what we do. Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sunday. We thank you for time Under the sound of your word, with your word open in our laps, Lord, would you open to us its meaning, and would you help us to understand, Lord, help us to obey what we see here that suggests commands that we change, and in that process of becoming more like you and less like ourselves, we we ask for your sustaining help. Lord, I ask that you encourage each of us that are discouraged. Lord, I ask that you help us rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Lord, would you bless other churches doing this same thing. Bless their leadership. Bless their congregations. Bless their families. And Lord, bless them with ears to hear, eyes to see, understanding and obedience. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, whatever is said of Paul the Apostle... um, You can't say that his travels were boring. And so far we've seen all sorts of things, but we're we're right at the cusp of of these things beginning to escalate and and rather quickly. Um, And this just goes for those who say that Bible reading is monotonous. You're reading it wrong if you're reading through Acts, and this isn't interesting. 
Hollywood has long since abandoned good stories. They just repeat the same ones that made the money before, it seems. This here has got all the dramatics of action and battle and problem uh, and then hopes of a solution. And we're just getting started again. From place to place, Paul faces these crises one after another. And there's one place in Scripture, this is uh, 2 Corinthians 11, where he kind of makes a list. I thought maybe that'd be good to read before we get going. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and in exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me for my anxiety for all the churches. I read that and I want to say to myself, self, what's your problem? You've had a rough go of it for a couple of months, but boil it all down. It's grief and busyness, which everyone, given enough time, is associated with. This, this man's a man's man, but he's also God's apostle to the Gentiles. And this is a unique occasion here, um, managing to escape seemingly at the last minute at every turn so far. Verses 27 through 40 from this chapter, chapter 21, um, it basically covers Paul's arrest, and he's going to remain a prisoner in some shape or fashion for the rest of our time in the book of Acts. We learn other things from his epistles, and it, it takes a while to, with the help of maps and timelines to manage to make sense of, of each of them, though they do. But this is also the prelude to his first defense. Uh, we stopped right, right short of what he says to these people. It, it's his defense in front of a mob. And then these defenses will, will climb the ladder of authority through Roman uh, government as we turn the pages in weeks to come. But verse 27 picks up on the heels of James's plan. We discussed that last week. He gets to Jerusalem. The first thing he does is go to James, explains what had happened on the third missionary journey, and then there's this plan by James and the elders to alleviate some misunderstanding between the Christian Jews who've listened to these others who've been lying about Paul teaching things he hadn't been teaching, but it included a disregard for the law of Moses don't circumcise your kids. You don't have to worry about any of this. Now, there's a point to that, but it was for the Gentile believers that it was not salvific. We discussed each of these things. But to keep up appearances, it seems, and to mitigate trouble and to maintain an open airwaves of communication between the Christian Jews, Paul submits himself to these purification rites along with these four individuals. I tend to think it was on the basis of these four that Paul thought it was necessary. He could speak to these four. He'd have some time with them. And when we pick up here, there in verse 27, 
when the seven days were almost completed. Previous verses talked about time of, of, of purification. Well, it was seven days. And when this is almost done, you've got these Jews from Asia who recognize him in the temple and stir up the whole crowd and lay hands on him. Um, quite a transition from last week to this week. One thing we should note, though, these are not Jewish Christians that are introduced in verse 27. These are non-believing Jews from Ephesus. These were the same Jews that had followed Paul around and had been a thorn in his flesh. Might not be the thorn in his flesh that he talks of, but a thorn nonetheless. They'd been close to killing him before, and now it seems they're in Jerusalem for Pentecost and spot him in the temple. Of course, they recognize him immediately, and that's when things get crazy. Hostilities are quickly initiated. Reinforcements are requested where they say, crying out, men of Israel, help. What does that mean? Men of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob, after wrestling with the angels, given the name Israel. Twelve tribes of Israel. Israelites. Hebrews. Help me. Here's our enemy. And he defines this by explaining he's the guy everywhere, everyone against the people, the law in this place. You wonder if that guy's mom ever got a word in edgewise. You don't use words like always and never and everywhere. And, uh, but yeah, without exception, he's painting this picture that is in no way true. Paul didn't mention that at all. He'd mention it in order to discuss it for the purpose of... Uh, differentiating between what's required for salvation, but that was not his main thrust. We'll get to that soon. But if you look at uh, verse 29, Paul gives us, excuse me, Luke, an editorial comment, some insight as to what's going on, because he's saying he's teaching them and then lowers the boom. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. What's the big deal about that? Well, you'd need a little bit of background, not only in uh, Hebrew and Judaistic uh, practices and traditions, but even the layout of the temple complex. In the middle was the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And separating that Holy of Holies from the rest of the building was this massive veil, the veil of the temple. It was made out of animal skins, uh, something like 30 feet tall, about the thickness of a man's hand. Uh, it would have taken oxen to rip it apart. That's what split from top to bottom when Jesus said it's finished. And the picture is that uh, what's being said is, what has been off limits to everyone since I put these things together and met with you in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Stay out. I'm holy. You're not. Jesus pays the ultimate sacrifice. It splits from top to bottom. Hey, everybody come to me. It's paid for. I need your faith and repentance, and you've got heaven as your reward. Heirs of the kingdom, including the Gentiles. That's what Paul's all about. Outside that was called the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place. And only Levites are able to go into that section. Step out a bit further, you've got the court of the men. That's Jewish men. Outside of that is the court of the women, Jewish women. And outside of that is the court of the Gentiles, and that's anybody. 
But there's several gates and doors you've got to go through in order to get to the holy place. Likely where this takes place is the court of the men. Then you've got the court of the women, the court of the Gentiles. And there's signs that were placed on the door. They've dug up some of these, uh, two of them, one of them in the, this uh, previous century. But it says, on pain of death, basically, anyone other than a Jew by blood is forbidden from this point forward. And it was so bad that the Romans, just to keep the peace, would carry out the executions if that statute is violated. So this accusation here, he's brought these Greeks he went to go preach to into the temple with him. But had he? Look at verse 29. This is Luke. The word for kind of tips us off to he's going to explain something. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesians, Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They just supposed that's what was going on. It didn't happen, but they thought it did. And then in verse 30, then all the city was stirred up. So it was a crowd they'd stirred up. Now it's a city they've stirred up. Seize Paul, drag him out, and shut the gate. So, uh, yeah, that, that has escalated quickly. Technically speaking, Luke is using a literary device called accelerated crisis. I don't know if you knew that that's the magic ingredient in most of the stuff on TV that people watch. We have very short attention spans. It needs to get to the point. And the bigger and crazier and louder the explosion, usually the more we like it. Well, this is, this is pretty bad. Uh, he tips us off with, with this type of literary use. They stirred up the whole crowd. Now they stirred up all the city. They laid hands on Paul. They seized Paul. We get to the next verse. And seeking to kill Paul. So the idea here is that if there were no intervention, Luke is telling us, be prepared. This is Paul's last. He's not going to last within the hour if they have their way. So verse 31, as they were seeking to kill him... Word came to the tribune of the cohort, that's a regimen, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So here's kind of the pivot. You know, you've got the crisis building, and this is going to save the day. And it's the Romans that are going to be doing it. If you ever have the time to, and you're reading through books of the Bible, to isolate certain thrusts that the author send tends to paint the picture of, both with Luke, the gospel of Luke, and his second acts, he seems to go out of his way to paint the Romans as sympathetic in that they protect at least justice. You got Pilate washing his hands. I don't like this. I don't find any fault in this man. And you've got his own people, Jesus' own people, that is, clamoring for his death. Now, does that mean that they're not both guilty in the crucifixion? Oh, they're absolutely guilty. At the same time, the whole thing's preordained by God. So, who's in charge here? Yes, is the answer to that question. Um, but as far as, as, as this commander of the Roman garrison, he's described as the tribune of the cohort uh, was stationed close by. Again, if you had a map, you might have one in the back of your Bible. Look at it at lunch. But uh, they might have a layout of the temple complex. And the Antonia Fortress 
was right there, uh, adjacent to it, separated by a, a flight of stairs, which Paul is climbing the stairs, the last scene here. And the purpose for this was to keep the peace. There was a thousand men stationed here, we're told in history. 760 were foot soldiers, 240 were cavalry. And this brought an end to what had begun the beating of Paul. Uh, It it could have been that that's how they were going to dispatch with him. But when the tribune himself, that's, that's the head honcho of the Antonio Fortress and 10 centurions under him, shows up, well, they stop. Um, verse 33, narrative continues. The tribune came up and arrested him. So he arrests Paul. Whether or not, you know, we're Americans, we think you arrest him first and then ask questions. Well, that's how it happened here. But it is a mob going on, and maybe it's the safest thing for Paul and for these men. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. Couldn't learn the facts because of the uproar, so they go to the barracks. Came to the steps. They're carrying Paul. Why? Because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people's following, crying out, away with him. So the commander asked the obvious questions. Who are you? What is this all about? Inability to sort it out. They're going to retreat. Violence is so bad. But if... If you're familiar with your New Testaments, this is the exact spot where Jesus is tried, where he's scourged. This is where perhaps some of the same people 27 years earlier cried, crucify him. They're now crying away with him. It's the same group of Jews who disbelieve Jesus was who he said he was. They're still looking for their Messiah. But it's, it's just, it's strange to, to read what sounds like the same story's sequel 27 years later. Verse 37, as Paul's brought to the barracks, he says to the tribune, and we really don't know much about this Egyptian who stirred up a revolt, 4,000 men of the assassins. That It's capitalized like that's their title. Hey, I got this 4,000 strong group of men we call ourselves the assassins you know it sounds formidable but um from josephus we know what little that that we do um most of these men were killed by the romans except for the the prophet himself who escaped he's kind of like uh i don't know hussein or bin laden he's at large and this tribune thinks he might have him because he asked him, are you, are you that guy that led those men out into the wilderness and then disappeared? And Paul answers, uh, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, not a small town out in the wilderness. I beg you to let me speak. Um, and what, what seems to be dramatic, but it's kind of covered um, don't you think a rioting group of people so loud that the officials can't figure out who's who and what's going on, the only thing they can do is get inside the barracks to sort this out. But with one gesture of this man's hand, silence falls over the whole place. Now, is this the Holy Spirit on him or is it just, okay, you're, you're watching this man. Maybe they cheer, maybe... 
Well, we know what they did. It seems strange. And isn't that just the worst place in the world for a chapter break? Look at it. Hebrew language saying, then you're off to 22. And I thought, well, with a chapter break like that, that's where we're stopping the sermon just because it's a to be continued, right? <laughs> same channel, same place. Maybe this is the, you know, the, the, the season conclusion. The next paragraph goes to the next. But if you look at chapter 23, it does the same thing. Really what you're looking at is a run-on situation that needs multiple breaks. And we do know from, uh, you know, Bible school or Sunday school perhaps, the chapter breaks were added later. Luke didn't do that. Luke didn't say, come back next time <laughs> to be continued. He's just carrying on. It's kind of like uh, when I was a kid, I remember we used to have a rural route. We were uh, Route 3, Box 1229, Ringgold, Virginia. No zip code. I can actually say, hey, I was around before we had a zip code. Well, I wasn't around before the Bible had chapters and verses, but there was a time before there were chapters and verses. They're only added to keep up with where you are so you can name the address and find it in your, your Bibles. It's kind of like a way or means of indexing. But... This is quite a, a transition, and we'll wait till next week. Uh, but before we do that, and before we try to ask ourselves, all right, w- w- what can we say about all this? And then the next step, what can we do about any of it? Uh, take one last mental look at that last frame. They've been beating on this guy. And... The place is silent. He's standing in an elevated position up a flight of stairs. I wouldn't think it strange to think that he's probably bleeding. Uh, Maybe his lips are swollen and eyes shut. I don't know. It's 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 a bad sight. He's in a mess. And you can hear a pin drop. And what follows is perhaps one of the most important defenses of not his personal standing, but the gospel of Jesus Christ in front of the people who are determined not to hear it. So come back next week or get your Bibles and read it and read it and read it. In fact, do that before because it's good stuff. So what can we say about this? Because it's not, it's not Romans. It's not listing out points of theology Uh, This isn't Titus where he's telling them how to behave. You know, uh, believing is behaving. This is just a sequence of events and what took place in the early church and how the gospel was spread. Sometimes it's best just to look at who's involved and maybe what can you say about each of those. Uh, I found this in one of the commentaries, found it to be helpful. There's different ways we could go about it. But there is the man, that one's Paul. He's front and center. There's a mob and it's referred to as that as the, in the ESV. And then somewhere hidden in the whole thing, because there's really not much to say about the group of people from Ephesus, uh, the Jews from Asia. Let's talk about the church for which Christ died, who met with Paul right before this happened, including those four men who are interrupted as they're going through the purification rites, which Jews do, but they're believing Christians Where's this church that's been around for 20-some years? 
And what are they doing? Well, this is an, an official argument from silence. We've got to be very careful with that. Luke's not talking about the, the church and what we just read. He's talking about a mob. Is the church included in that mob? Maybe, maybe not. But that church is who Paul represents. And that church is saved by the grace that he continues to preach. And then there's those Jews who are Christians who are kind of got one foot in Christianity and they've got maybe at least just the tip of the last foot still attached, you know, on the other side of the boundary line into the old law and all the traditions. Those would die hard. And you're walking that tightrope. But it's been a couple decades and it's very obvious that it seems Paul is alone here. Now, the only indication we've got that anybody may have protested was one, some said one thing, some said another. So maybe you've got some people in there saying, hey, wait just a minute, Paul's a good guy. All that stuff's just a bunch of lies. No mention of James, no mention of the elders. Again, argument from silence. But... Does that ever resemble the church at any point in our history back to its birth on the day of Pentecost? Yes. And it is the church in Ephesus where these men had been, where Paul had been, where he had stood with them in another spot on a beach, leaving his tears on the beach saying, you've got to watch for the wolves. You've got to watch for those inside the church. You're going to want to compromise this is the church for which Christ gave his blood. You know, he couldn't have attached it to anything of more worth. This is the bride of Christ. And which church is it in Revelation that loses their first love? It'd be Ephesus. Now, second century, it looks like they find it again. But we have this problem, and we always do, because we're in the world, though we're not of the world, and the the. the the temptation is, you know, we can do this the easy way. We don't always have to do it the hard way. We talked about that last week. Sometimes the easy way is the best way. Sometimes the hard way is the best way. We've got to have wisdom to figure out the difference between the two. So I do find it interesting that you don't see James, you don't see the elders. You've got maybe uh, a counter argument. And who comes to the rescue? The Roman government. That's who seems to save Paul's life. That's the way the story tells it. That's what happened. The only mention of the church other than a maybe would be the previous paragraph where there's a plan in place to try to keep the peace between those who see it one way and those who see it another way. Uh, so if Luke is paying attention to, to record what is important to folks, well, I think we've got an argument there. Well, let's leave the church where it is, kind of hiding, at least from our view. And what about this mob? A mob was the word that was described there. That's a good use of the term. It's a conglomeration of angry people covering the spectrum from one end to the other. And Luke is generic. From one said one thing, one said another thing. We're not specific on one was for Paul, one was against Paul. Or one liked circumcision and the other didn't, you know. Um, so the one thing that seems to unite the whole group is that they're all loud and frenzied. Uh, that's usually why 
you describe a group of people, a mob, instead of a group of people. Um, We'll have to study our way to the end of this defense next week, but there's a point at which Paul begins to speak, and that's beginning of chapter 22. And then if if you've got your Bibles open and you look at verse 22 of chapter 22, up to this word they listened to him. So at a certain spot, the, the mob breaks their silence and goes crazy again. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. They were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. It's it's total pandemonium. What was it that got them started? And what was it that got them started again? It was the mention of one word. And that was, if you look, I know we're robbing from next week's message here. He says in verse 20, And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, my, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, this would be the voice of God, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They were mad because he brought a Gentile into the temple that he really didn't. And then they lost it again when he said, I went to the Gentile with the gospel Jesus. So I, I think it's clear Luke is portraying this mob as a, as a prideful mob, but as a prejudicial mob. What is meant by the word prejudice? Well, it, it just simply means you know, your, your, your bias, your preconceived notions, true or false. All of us have those things. The, the, Part of it is the way we, we, we are raised. Part of it is things that, that we think through. But it's the way we navigate the world we live in. You might call it a worldview. But you've got two major ones in conflict here. And the only representative of the one is the beaten man standing on the steps, gesturing with his hand. Um, This idea came from a wrong view of themselves and a wrong view of their God, but it's obvious that they would be true to these wrong notions at all costs. And that really is the the crux of the whole gospel message, isn't it? You got Matthew writing to Jews, answering the question if that was the Messiah, why is he dead? Why is he gone? And he starts with the lineage, doesn't he? And traces him all the way back to the kingly line for the purpose of saying, thus the scriptures were fulfilled, blah, blah, blah. Much more than blahs. It's, it's theology. He's making the case. Same as John. Same as Mark. And same as Luke. He is who he said he was. And, and, and John probably is one of my favorites. He's tying all these signs together, these things that nobody else can do, pointing to the fact that he's not like any of you. And the ultimate sign is that God raised him from the dead because his sacrifice satisfied his righteous requirements and death had no claim on a man who'd never sinned. So when you've got these two massive thinking uh, worldviews colliding here, it's dramatic. So that was the church. Then we had the mob um, who, and I'd written one more thing. 
their wrong idea was to the point that they thought God had no need for the non-Jewish world except for ruling them and destroying them if they stood in the way of Jewishness. This is what Paul's doing, right? You're telling Jews not to be Jewish, but that Jesus is enough. Now, he didn't teach it like that. That's putting words in his mouth. But yes, salvation is through faith and on the basis of grace. And that's the way it happens. And so did the Jerusalem Council agree. So what do they do from this point? Well, let's switch from the mob, having talked about the church, and let's talk about this man, Paul. We don't need to say much about that. It's the same as we learned last week. He was motivated not personally. He's not there in a fit to defend himself, but to defend the gospel of Jesus. I'll have to wait for that next week, and we'll hear it from his own words. He starts out with the words, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And it talks about Paul, but for the purpose of saying that it's not about Paul. It's about Jesus, who saved Paul on the road to Damascus. He'll talk about those things. All right, that's what we can say, I think. Uh, What can we learn? This is a little tougher. Sometimes that art of taking wasness and moving to isness is a little more detailed uh, than others. If you think this is a stretch too far, you're smart people. You can be judge of such things with your Bibles. Um, but if we started back with the mob, these are in different orders, and back to their, their prejudice, their preconceptions, there's a dead giveaway as to the fact that, that they're probably in the wrong. And it has to do with the 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 way they held so tightly to it and the way Paul held so tightly to what he thought to be true. They're both convicted that they have the truth. They can't both be right because they're contradictory. When, when you've got an elevated situation like this, if the test of conviction is the temper it produces then it really hasn't changed since the days Jesus walked among them. They still want nothing to do with this carpenter from Galilee. They're wrong, but they're even holding tighter than they've ever held tightly before. They've doubled down on on their ignorance. Uh, Anger, frenzy, agitation, defensiveness are always a condemnation of the thing defended. You ever notice that? It's just human behavior. Um, y'all ever have fights at home? I didn't think so. <laughs> sure you do. When you have a fight at home, you talk it out. I hope so. Just bury that stuff. It'll come up in the form of fire or water one, one way or the other later. But when you're talking it out, discussing the difference of opinion, not always, because it has a lot to do with temperament, but a lot of the time, the most defensive, most vocal, most red-faced and bulging veins in one's neck is the one who's wrong. Because the one who's right, and they know they're right, and it's not just them or their opinion. They've got others, and it's based on more than that. They can be relaxed because, really, they don't, they don't have to be right. It is right. Now, if it's a, I have to be right, it's probably an opinion or 
my way. Your option is the highway. No one ever needlepoints a beautiful my way or the highway. <laughs> that is said with authority and usually regret, right? So when they're all crazy throwing dust in the air and all this, what are they protecting? You know, um, you've seen uh, men dying for country with, with more dignity and poise than they argue over a man that they think will soon be dead. Um, maybe a, an illustration. I remember one time, I won't use names, but uh, was watching something that a friend had shown me. This was back when I was in seminary. And this was designed for internet. I think you could buy it on DVD if you wanted to. But they got a lot of pastors together. And uh, the idea was that these pastors from different denominations uh, would sit down kind of uh, around a table and they would debate issues within ministry. Um, Some small churches, some big churches, some lots of books that they'd written, some very few books. Um, The one that I remember watching was three people at a table and it quickly became two against one. And the two that were defending their model quickly changed from chapter and verse to personal attacks against this other pastor who I had read some of his books and listened to some of his sermons. I listened to the other guy on the radio. It happened to be in the lineup when I used to change oil at the Ford place. I was allowed to listen to it, so might as well learn while you're working, right? The other guy in defense never went in like manner. He just kept going to chapter and verse and never once defended his own personal ideas or his own church. I thought a lot differently about those three men after that. And the two that got all hot and bothered. By the time I'd graduated, they didn't have church anymore. One for uh, lying and the other for uh, money issues. Now, this isn't the litmus test, you know, if they lose their temper, they're in sin and won't have a ministry. No, you know, Peter and Paul lost their temper, I think we have evidence of. Um, But it does say some things. And then as for the church here, we'll look at Paul last. We didn't see the church severing itself from some of the things that are contradictory in the mob and its actions. Again, we've got to be careful. But I think we can say that even if we don't see the church drawing a line with courtesy and with love and compassion, a line that must be drawn to distinction between the church and everything else, Paul's shortly going to draw that line with clarity. And if it cost him his life, he's going to draw that line between the two. And he'll draw that line in front of the Romans. He'll draw that line in front of anybody who wants to hear it. It's a defense, and it's clear, and it's articulate. The church has had a problem with drawing that line. We continue to have a problem with drawing that line. There's different ways you can misdraw the line. You can draw the line, but, with, but, but like these people in the mob, 
throwing dust in the air and screaming and hollering to where no one wants to even know those types of people who don't know their God, their Jesus, or anyone else. There's also the, the, the road of compromise. Uh, do we really believe that this is what this meant like we believed this is what this meant generations prior? And wouldn't this settle a lot of heartache within the church? You better be careful. We're only qualified to teach what we find in the pages of this scripture, and we're disqualified to remove any of it as well. There is a reason, I do believe, why Paul made his motivation so abundantly clear. I determined to preach Christ and Him crucified, and that only. Because of the group he was talking to. Now, when he got to the places where he had planted churches, and when he talked to these men on the beach, he was talking about other things, wasn't he? But that was his family, the brothers and sisters in Christ. And for generations, I think the church has been family. These days, you don't know who's in the church, and you don't know who knows what in the church. Maybe it's, 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 we talk about this in, in membership class. Maybe they're all away games from here on out instead of home games. Maybe it's not such a bad idea to stick with Christ and Him crucified. Seem to get the word out as far as the birth of the church. And there's less to trip over or offend people of needlessly. You want to offend them, let it be offended by the gospel, but not by the way we do this, that, or what color the carpet's going to be. So there's things to learn. And as far as, as the hot button issue within the church today, it's not at all what it was in this regard. And we're going to see that move on. Our battlefront here in America is sexuality. Who wants to talk about that? Nobody. In fact, I think we're doing a pretty good job at not talking about it at all. Does that mean that we should keep silent about it? No. Does that mean that we get us a big microphone and, and, and like play tapes of what we think about that, you know, so all of Fuquay can hear it outside the context of a worship service? Probably not the best way to do it. Should we preach it when the passage we're covering speaks on it? Yes. Or you're not teaching the whole counsel of, of, of Scripture. Folks, I don't, I don't know what to think about the trajectory of our culture. I don't, I don't feel like you're going to need to bail your pastor out of jail one day. But if one of my sons decides to follow in this calling, I wouldn't be surprised. What does that tell you about the skin one has in the game is looking at a beaten up man who went to Rome on purpose to see how far into the Roman red zone he can get that ball. Now, at certain times, he's going to ask that they throw a flag. Hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't beat me. In fact, I shouldn't be in chains. And they find out they've made an error and there's a problem and he gets a little further down, down the field. He's doing his best to get the message as far as we can. It involves wisdom. We're going to need it too. But what we cannot do and we will not do 
is give away the very basics of the gospel. We, we can't redefine the word sin. We've got one definition of it. It's in this book. It's God's definition, and that's the definition of sin. And if you mess with the definition of sin, then you've messed with what it costs to pay for it. And if you mess with what it costs to pay for it, you've just stripped the cross of its ability to save. We've got nothing to talk about but be a bunch of weird-looking people dressed in weird clothes the whole world would think we've really lost our mind then. No, we would have lost our mind then. We've given away the one thing that makes us unique. There's only one thing the church has that the world doesn't. If the church doesn't use it, the world will be lost, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't always get into these things, but I think this passage opened the door wide as it can be. To give away the very truth of the gospel is to trade peace, toleration, compromise, is to relegate ourselves to the ash heap of history, to be forgotten. But if she'll keep it as simple as Jesus gave it to his followers on a mountaintop, though marginalized, bruised, even persecuted, it'll be to her that men and women will look in their hour of loss, heartbreak, sorrow, and when the Holy Spirit begins to draw them, to rebirth them as sons of God and daughters of God. And then there's this man. Again, it's no different than last week. This man has a heart for the gospel and a head full of wisdom. Where did he get all that? Pages of scripture and some special revelation that God told him not to tell us. Don't you like that part? Hey, don't tell them this. I told you, but don't tell them. Inquiring minds want to know. We'll find out soon enough. What is it we're here to do? I think Paul knew what he was there to do. We need to know what we're here to do. And while you're looking at the beat-up, crusty man who could stick his finger in the face of anybody and then drop that mic like nobody's business, don't forget the Paul that sat down on the riverbanks and talked with the least of these. Don't forget the Paul that gathered up the broken hearts and the boy that fell out of the window. Don't forget the Paul who would say, I never ceased with tears telling you the truth, sounding the alarm. We can't forget this stuff. This is who we are and this is what we do. There'll always be a band that can play better music. The church is not here to entertain people with music. There'll always be a club who can make people feel like they're part of it with camaraderie. We could go on and on and on, but no one. What did Peter say? To whom shall we turn? You alone have the words of life. That's what we've got. And that's what we must preach. And that's who we'll support as they go out and tell others the same thing. Because the clock is ticking. One day a time will be up. We'll be known as, or we'll know ourselves as we've been known. It'll be great. But there's still time to score another point. Get that ball down the field. Get that puck in the net, ball in the basket. Apply whichever sport you enjoy. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We thank you for these adventure tales from the life of Paul the Apostle and for Luke who writes them down 
Lord, we thank you for what is here. May we focus on what is main and plain. And Lord, may we be about the business for which you died. Lord, would you please burn into our heads a single motivation like that single eye you talked about in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. If, if, if our eye is darkened, everything is dark. If our eye is whole, it's single. It lights the whole body. Lord, would this ministry be described as the song we're about to sing? In Christ alone. May it be. Lord, we thank you in your precious name. Amen.